Good morning. Good afternoon. <laughs> I did it again. How about that? Uh, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, please. Hebrews chapter 13, as we continue our exploration through this wonderful letter nearing the end. There's light at the end of the tunnel, and uh, we find ourselves in the middle of chapter 13. If you grew up in ancient Israel, there'd be something around all the 12 tribes, three tribes on the right and the left, or the east and the west, and the north and the south. The 12 tribes, what would be right in the middle? The tabernacle, right? And the tabernacle, and then in that outer court, there'd be skins hung all around the sides. I can't remember, Charlie probably knows, it's like seven to eight feet high, uh, maybe higher. But as you would enter that outer court, um, you would see something right before you, the bronze altar. And the bronze altar would be the place where, I think of seven feet round, where sacrifices would be made. And it would be a reminder to you that there is no way you can approach God and to go into the holy place or the holy of holies apart from sacrifice. The altar provided a vivid reminder of that. After Christ had come, the early church did away with the altar and just focused on the preaching of the word and prayer and the, the ordinances and, and those types of things. And, and, and the Jews, as they looked at the early church, would mock them and say, your religion doesn't even have an altar anymore. We have an altar, right? And even uh, the, the pagans um, and their various, the cults and all that would have various altars and various sacrifices. And so these, these, these uh, Jewish converts to Christ, where they did away with the altar, would be mocked and made fun of. And the writer of the Hebrews knows that that's a very real thing we'll see in our text today. Of course, throughout the ages and the Middle Ages, large cathedrals began to be built with glorious stained glass and statues, and it's almost as though you come to one of these, like I love looking at these in Europe, and you think that, wow, this is extra holy. God's presence must be here even more so than in a plain building like the one we're meeting in. That could be the mindset, right? And though outwardly dazzling, often empty. But inside, the, the distinct feature of the furniture inside of these places, right in the front, right in the center, was what? An altar. It was an altar, right? And you see that even at the Lutheran church we used to meet at, um, over there at Atonement. There was an altar. And of course, we put the pulpit in front of the altar. And what happened with the Protestant Reformation is there was a reforming of the fact that we don't need an altar anymore. Well, we have an altar, but it's spiritual. It's Christ. It's what He has accomplished. And now what we need to focus on is the centrality of the proclamation of the Word of God. To proclaim the good news of the Gospel. So the Reformers got rid of the altar, moved the pulpit back to the center to focus on the centrality of preaching. Our writer today will say we have an altar which those that serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat. What is that saying? Those still hung up with the old covenant system. Those still clinging to an earthly altar and an animal sacrifice altar can't have our altar. 
because you can't have both. So let's read our text. Verses 9 to 12, Hebrews 13. I'll begin with 8 because verse 8 was really a a hinge verse. It's connected to 7 and 9. I'll explain that in a moment. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside of the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside of the camp. Our Father, we thank you so much for the privilege to have even our catechism question focused on the first day of the week. We thank you for the Lord's Day. We thank you for an opportunity to gather together to work, to devote to your worship and to hear your word proclaimed. And Lord, we thank you for those that, that shed their blood for the preservation of the Holy Scriptures. And Lord, even as we just look at four small verses in this grand scheme of a book within the 66 books of the Holy Scripture, Lord, give us understanding and a greater appreciation that we would appreciate what Christ has accomplished for us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 13 is really, uh, chapter 1 to 12 sets forth the doctrine of Christ and all of the glorious things, and it's imperative, command, 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 let love continue, don't neglect showing hospitality, remember the prisoners, visit them, right? And, and, And then that the marriage bed would be held in honor, that sexual immorality, a reminder that God will judge them, and then the comfort that God will never leave us or forsake us, because why? Because the Lord is my helper. And then last week, we looked at 7 and 8, and verse 7, remember those that led you and spoke the word of God to you. Remember those leaders, perhaps leaders that have already passed on, because as we get a little bit further in chapter 13, he'll address the, the leaders that were actually among them, and, but to remember what? Their teaching, to keep remembering, keep recollecting those people back in India that, that were instrumental in bringing you to faith. You know, the people that 20 years ago in the Sunday school class that imparted something to you, remember those and then consider their lives, including their death. Consider the way they lived and reflect upon that. And then imitate, he says, uh, the very things that they do. And the immutability of Christ is in stark contrast to how we change as humans. So, the writer's purpose all through the book has been what? Don't want you to fall away. Persevere unto the end. Do not drift away. Do not go off the path. But persevere to the end. He doesn't want them to fall away. And the good leaders in verse 7 who we are to imitate, and then the immutability of Christ in the middle, is contrasted with the false teachers in verse 9. And so verse 8 sort of hinges the two. So we're going to look at this under three points. 
Uh, Verse 9, don't be carried away by teaching, strange teachings. Secondly, we have an altar outside of Judaism. Okay, And lastly, and that's verse 10, and then verse 11 and 12 are tucked together. Sin offerings and Christ offering happen outside of the gate. So first first of all, he says it's good to be strengthened by grace. Isn't that true? It's good to be reinvigorated, to be strengthened by grace. And grace is something that's supernatural and spiritual that, that comes to us. But, but he says here that not by foods. No, food is good. I told my wife, I'm going shopping tomorrow after my appointment, and I'm going to go to a certain market, and I'm going to get my favorite steak, and one of the nights this week I'm going to have a steak. Now, when I enjoy that steak... Okay, it doesn't mean that that somehow grace is going to come to me. Now, I'll have protein if I've lifted that day. That steak is going to feed the muscles, right? But 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 that's not what the writer is saying. That, that it's not by foods that we get this. So he says, don't be carried away. Literally, to to be you know when you drop a flower in a, in a little stream and you see it being carried away. That's the that's the imagery here. But of course, this is a uh, figuratively right to be. To be led away from the truth of God, which can happen very subtle, right? It's the same word that occurs in Jude 12, speaking of a similar theme, actually. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by the winds. That's the word, carried along led astray by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. See, the reality is this is we're sheep. What's the hymn say? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Am I the only one that can agree with the hymn writer? We are prone to wonder. Spurgeon has, has said that sheep tend to itch after new paths. Right? We kind of want the, the new and the novel thing that comes down the pike, that, that somehow we can be attracted to that. And certain teachers and preachers are always coming up with something new. Just put a little spin, adding a little bit of this ingredient to it, and, and sometimes to where it becomes heretical, jumping off the ancient paths, as it were. According to chapter 5 and verse 11, you remember the writer had said that that by now they should have been teachers. But they, they cling to the elementary things. Let's just read the verbatim here. By this time you ought to be teachers, but you have need again of someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come need for milk and not solid food. And so... The immature, they were immature, and the writer knew this. And so what does he mean here by the varied and strange? Well, the word varied is just like you would think, like, you know, all kinds of various types of things. It it has the the root idea of the spots of a leopard, so all types of variations. It's the word in the Septuagint that refers to Joseph's coat, which had the various colors of, of fabric. And so, you know, varying all kinds of teaching, but then strange is xenos, where we get xenophobia, the fear of strangers. It has the idea of something foreign and something 
alien, alien and something strange, something different. Now, it's, it's not the idea that this is bizarre, that the teaching says, if you live as an Eskimo for a year in the snow, you'll grow a third eye and be able to see more of God. It's not something strange like that. Or Ezekiel has these, these visions of the wheels in the sky. I think Journey is a song, Wheels in the Sky, that keep on turning. But uh, Wheels in the Sky, and that, that somehow that was talking about UFOs. And we should be looking for UFOs. It's not bizarre. It's strange in that it's contrary to the grace that comes to us from Christ alone. Introducing foods, introducing feasts, introducing all of these things. That's the idea of strange. Paul has a similar concern in Ephesians 4. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here, tossed there by waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. No longer to be those that are, lack of a better word, unstable, right? To be wobbly, to be swayed away. You know, the Roman Catholic Church would say that the authority of the popes and the councils are above the scriptures. But you think of what about for us today? Do we have anything strange or varied today in our day? Or do we just got it all figured out? I mean, we're 20 centuries later. We're focused on Christ and Him alone. Is that true? The evangelical church? No. We're in the era of the YouTube and podcast era. Think of how just in the last couple of decades, how evangelicals could lose their focus, not necessarily heretical, but fads, something new, you know, these fads that come down the line, not necessarily bad, but I think of the prayer of Jabez when that book came out. Oh, this is the secret prayer that we, we, we've just read over all these years, and, 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 and there was a huge focus on that. Rick Warren's book, The 40 Days of Purpose. Ah, finally, now I, I'm going to understand my purpose in this life. The scriptures weren't enough, but Rick's book helped me. You know, it's these kinds of things. The whole Promise Keeper movement, the Harvest Crusades. You know, again, not necessarily heretical, but, but there, are, there is a lot out there that is heretical, isn't it? There's a lot out there that would deny the core essentials of the faith. There's a ton out there that denies the core essentials of the faith. And sheep are prone to wonder. Do you know where the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons get their largest growth from? From professing evangelicals. Isn't that amazing? They're just gullible. And, Hi, I'm from the Watchtower Society. You know, and, and, and evangelicals can be so gullible and be led astray. I'm speaking very broadly, right? It's not good works that saves us. George Whitfield, the great evangelist, says, works, works, can a man get to heaven by works? I would assume, think of climbing to the moon with a rope of sand. How far are you going to get? You won't even get off the ground. That's how far away it is that works could actually save you. Now, I think sometimes evangelical, well-meaning churches shoot themselves in the foot by accident, right? When we think of the younger generation and how can we equip them that they would not be gullible and fall into these varied and strange teachings. You think of how many large churches like to segregate 
the young people from the worship of God. You know, they call it children's church, they let them sing a song or two, and they usher them off, and they're not in the worship of God. And then maybe later it's a youth group that runs the same time as the worship service, and little Johnny, by the time he's 18, he's never sat in a worship service. He doesn't know what it's like. He's got to play ping pong all his junior high and high school days, and and eat popcorn and watch funny movies and, and all of that. No, Johnny doesn't know how to worship. Now at 18, he's going to learn how to actually worship the living God. We shoot ourselves in the foot by having these types of programs. In large evangelical church, maybe it's, it's a, it's, they would say, well, it's a necessity. We have two services. They're both packed. We can only fit adults. Plus, we don't want kids crying or anything like that. You know, so they get rid of them. It's wrong. And you wonder why so many of these kids, when they go to college, they fall away, right? They're easy bait. This is easy bait. They don't know anything of God. They haven't been catechized. They haven't been trained. They haven't been equipped. Oftentimes, these homes are not homes that have family worship where there's training that takes place. And that's why the Apostle Paul warns that false teachers will come after my departure, Ephesian elders. Some churches are capitulating to the culture's rejection of whatever is politically incorrect and they're ordaining women and all types of things. And, and Paul tells young Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.13, retain the standard of sound words. The word sound is the idea of healthy. Retain the standard of healthy words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, guard, that's a strong word, guard, protect, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You feel the gravitas of what he's telling? Timothy, you've got to guard this. It will be easily taken away. It will easily slip away. Retain the standard Two chapters later, three chapters later, Paul says at the end of that letter, because some will not endure sound doctrine. They'll accumulate teachers for themselves that what? Tickle the ear. Satan is an aggressive enemy of the church, the family, and your soul. But speaking of the church in particular, uh, uh, he's an enemy from without, often with persecution, right? But he's also an enemy from within the church. These false teachers, they can creep in. They, they, they know the Christian lingo, you know, and, and they're quickly accepted, and then they want a place of teaching. We need to be careful. Paul says, no wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That's why we, you need a plurality of elders that have spiritual discernment, Right? To, that when something like this creeps in, that it's able to be spotted. Well, he says here, so, so not be carried away by strange teachings, but to have the heart strengthened by grace. And this doesn't come by foods. The New English translation has not by ritual meals which have never benefited anyone who or participated in them. You think of eating was something that was big in Jewish culture, wasn't it? Right? All types of feasts, three feasts a year. You have the Passover, um, all types of ceremonial meals, regulations on food and drink. Um, and so 
that was big in Jewish culture. But Paul says in the New Testament, Romans 14, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Most likely, you know, the writer, as I said, is addressing these ceremonial meals. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, but food will not commend us to God, neither are we the worse if we do not eat, or the better if we do eat. So he says this idea of it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. You know, it's, it's kind of like when your, your face lightens up. You know, you have a greater understanding of grace. You're under the means of grace. How does God mediate His grace to us? We know from the text, it's not from foods, right? It's, it's not from certain feasts. It's, it's through the Gospel. It's through His Word. These are teachers that are saying it's, it's not enough. You need, you, need, you need that plus this. It's like the book of Galatians. What was their error? They said, oh yeah, justification by faith is fine, plus circumcision. You know, oftentimes these things creep in. It's, it's a little bit of plus of this, or legalism. You, you subtract that, never you know, do that, 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 this, and then you're okay, right? And so it's a subtracting and adding to. Paul says in Colossians, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy an empty deception according to the tradition of men. Later in verse 16, therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things of which a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. They're types and shadows. The writer says it's good for the heart to be strengthened. The, the, the writer's point is that it doesn't come from what we eat, but the grace that we receive through faith. And how do we receive that through faith? Well, the word literally means, remember I said wobbly, varied teachings and that kind of thing? This word strengthen has the idea of something sure, something that's fixed, something that's steadfast. It's standing firm on your feet. He's already talked about the wilderness generation. Remember when he talks about the heart? They hardened their hearts. Psalm 95, remember? They went astray. They hardened their hearts back in chapter 3 and verse 8. But then the promise of the new covenant from Jeremiah uh, 31 that's recorded here in 8, that, that he would renew our hearts and give us new hearts, right? So there's a sharp contrast from the grace by which our hearts should be strengthened through God's grace, compared to these foods of which does not profit. The section of Hebrews tells us how to spiritually nourish ourselves on Christ. In fact, I mean, just this week and next week's sermon, right? We have an altar, right? We, we, we're looking to His sacrifice. Verse 13, we're bearing His reproach. Verse 14, we're looking for the city to come. And we're worshiping Him with praise in verse 15. So what about us when we feel downcast, convicted, worthless? Now, we don't need to go to the kitchen to get some food. 
Um, binging on ice cream or Twinkies or whatever your little favorite thing might be is not where you go to lift up your soul when it's downcast. It's to receive fresh portions of God's grace. It's to fall to your knees. It's to immerse yourself in the Word. It's to be under all the means of grace so that your heart can be strengthened. Not by foods, but by the grace of God. There's other places in the New Testament, of course, that talk about people forbidding certain foods, right? And um, growing up as a very loose Roman Catholic, back in the olden days... On Fridays, you weren't allowed to eat what? (laughs) You weren't allowed to eat meat. And so it's like, oh, we have to have fish, right? And uh, so, and that that kind of practice, you know, was even in Southern California. Jennifer, a half a generation later, she's so much younger than me. But, uh, you know, this kind of thing, like you'd, you'd meet people and it's like, oh, I can't eat meat. It's Friday. Now that's, Goofy, isn't it? (laughs) And that's why the McDonald's fish filet has become a runaway hit and still exists today. Because nobody wants, you know, the real fish. It has to be all breaded in fast food. Speaking of that, junk food is bad for you. Did you know that? Okay, so I think we're becoming more aware now, you know, especially when you're growing this way instead of that way and, you know, that kind of thing. Childhood obesity in our country is at an all-time high. And a major culprit, of course, is unhealthy, poor eating habits and junk food. And junk food, that term, it's referred to as something that tastes good but lacks nutritional value, right? So when you go down the cereal aisle and you see nothing but, you know, laden with sugar and a little bit of wheat and it's all called different names... That's that's the kind of stuff. It's not really going to strengthen your muscles and make you strong. Candy bars, cookies, and all of that, I'm not saying you're outside of Christ if you ever eat that. In fact, we had guests, our dear missionaries here, and um, we splurged and had sweets last night, and I've been paying for it ever since. The sugar, you know, the, the crash, the runny nose, and all that. But to be spiritually healthy, we have to avoid spiritual junk food. We have to be careful what we allow into the ear gate what we're going to read. We have to be careful and discerning. And Well, this guy, you know, he, he, you know he's a little um, charismatic and he sometimes rants on in tongues, but he's just got a good heart. You know? No, you've got to be careful. You've got to be discerning so that you can spot counterfeits. Paul told the Galatians, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached, he is to be accursed. These Hebrew Christians were derided for avoiding these Jewish feasts. And Christians were mocked because they did not have an altar. You know, you can picture the idea of these Jews saying, come back to the synagogue. Come back. We've got an altar. Your religion doesn't even have an altar. And that takes us to our second point. We have an altar which is outside of Judaism. We have an altar which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. One of the reasons why I had, uh, Hebrews 7 read, you see the whole inferiority of the old covenant priesthood. So this is a spiritual altar. The imagery is that the Old Testament tabernacle, and especially that brazen altar, 
of which we talked was all a foreshadowing to the once and final offering of the Lord Jesus Christ, His crucifixion. It's a reality which answers the the, the shadows of the high priestly offering on that day of atonement. And unlike earthly altars and the bronze altar of which sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice would be on it, Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. He made that very clear in chapter 10. But He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, has sat down at the right hand of God. F.F. Bruce says Jesus' death is the source of the saving and sustaining grace by which our hearts are strengthened, not by food. The writer takes up really the central theme of of the book about the sacrifice of Christ and its implications um, for us and how it is superior to the Levitical sacrificial system. He, He encourages them to have their hearts strengthened by grace and not by foods. And and now he proceeds to continue the thought by making an allusion to eating again, but in the present context, it's not eating literal foods, but eating spiritual food that's provided by Christ. We have an altar. How many of the we haves do we treasure? We have a great high priest, right? Back in chapter 10 of verse 22. Let us hold fast to our confession without wavering. Um, we have an altar. It's, a pre- it's our present possession. And the glory of Christianity is that we have this altar. It's the old rugged cross. It's, it's the Lord Jesus Christ that serves as an inexhaustible helpings of grace. And so, George Whitfield wrote a hymn, Uh, wrote several hymns, but this one, I need thee, precious Jesus. I need thee, precious Jesus, for I am full of sin. My soul is dark and guilty. My heart is dead within. I need the cleansing fountain where I can always flee. The blood of Christ, most precious, the sinner's perfect plea. And didn't we just sing about blood I told Aaron, I want bloody songs today because we're thinking of this sacrifice and this altar. And and, and it's good. Well, those who, in the tabernacle, they have no right to eat. The writer uses the word tabernacle throughout the letter, you might notice, instead of temple, because obviously the temple was in Jerusalem at that time. And, And this is a large a strengthening reason why we think the date of Hebrews is before A.D. 70 because he's referring to the the temple and referring to the Levitical priesthood so much that that actually was still going on at that time. Those presently serving in the tabernacle or the temple, they have no right to eat. And that might sound mean. It's like, what? Those that serve in the tabernacle, they've got no right to eat what we eat. And it's talking about spiritual feasting, right? Feasting on Christ. And, and, you know, they have not embraced Christ as Lord and Savior. But to participate in all the benefits that we get from Christ's sacrifices reserved for Christians alone that have repudiated the Old Covenant system and are not trying to cling to the Old Covenant system. 
Those that are wrapped up in the old covenant have no rights, the benefits of Christ's atoning death. In fact, Judaism and Christianity are mutually exclusive. They're, they're, they're opposites. Practicing Jews are not our brothers and sisters in Christ. The Bible is clear. They are cut off from God until such time as they re- repent and embrace Christ. Christianity it has the profession of 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ is our Passover lamb. He's the lamb that has taken away our sins. Charles Spurgeon said, those who cling to the external and ceremonial observances of religion have no right to the privileges that belong to those who come to the spiritual altar. Those whose religion consists of outward rites and ceremonies can never eat of the spiritual altar at which spiritual men eat, for they do not understand the Scriptures, and they still serve the Mosaic temple. It is interesting throughout this letter that dawned on me this week that he makes no reference to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. You'd think like this would be a spot where it would fit pretty good, right? But he makes no reference to that, and John Brown gives some good arguments um, in regards to that, because there are a few commentators that somehow want to force that into the text. I don't think that's there. It's very clearly strange teachings, you know, of food, and then here it's a spiritual food. I think that's clear. Well, let's let's go to our last point here. So sin offerings and Christ's offering happened outside of the gate. These two verses really expound what verse 10 says. Verse 10 is short, it's to the point, and now he's going to expound on that. Now, in the Old Covenant, and especially on the Day of Atonement, those animals were taken, let's just read verse 11 again, the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burnt outside of the camp. This is referring clearly to Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. Read Leviticus 16 um, later just for extra reading and try to consider what you're hearing now. And so the idea is that the thinking goes like this. The the sacrifices that were offered on the Day of Atonement was first a bull for the sins of the priest and his family. And then there was two goats that were brought in. Remember what one of them was? The scapegoat. Isn't that beautiful? confessing the sins of the people upon the head, and then driven into the wilderness is a clear illustration of taking away our sin. But then the other one would have been slain, and the blood of the bull and of the goat would be taken into the Holy of Holies. The blood would be sprinkled there um, in the Holy of Holies. But the hides and the carcasses of those animals could not be consumed on the bronze altar. And they had to be taken outside of the camp. Leviticus 16.27 The bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering whose blood you brought to make atonement in the holy place shall be taken outside of the camp and they shall burn their hides and their flesh and their refuse with fire. What is this? Why is that? Why not just consume the whole thing there? It's a picture. It's a day of atonement. It's a picture of the complete utter removal of sin outside of the camp. So you've got the the priest walking out uh, past the children of Israel, past the the various tribes that are there, and going all the way to the outer part where the 
where the ash heap would be and then to, to uh, burn it with fire by wood. It's a beautiful picture, the complete removal of sin. And isn't that something that we enjoy reflecting on? Oh, I know Satan will whisper here, yeah, he might not be completely forgiven. Did you, what about, how did you get that thought yesterday? You know, like these kinds of things and accusations, but it's a glorious thing to know that our sins have been forgiven. And this idea to, to think that he, in the next verse here, that, that he suffered outside of the gate, therefore Jesus also. He draws the parallel, right? These carcasses had to be taken outside of the camp. And Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people by his blood, suffered outside of the gates. You see, Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What did he do? He, 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 he goes outside of the camp, and literally it's outside of the city walls of Jerusalem to Golgotha. So it's outside of the city proper is where he suffered, where he was crucified. He did not come to save the righteous. Where were the righteous? They were inside the walls. The Pharisees, the self-righteous, right? He did not come to call those. But he goes outside that he might rescue the outsiders and the outcast and the wicked. It's a beautiful picture of his purpose of what he has come to do. We must realize that at at the end of the day, we are wicked sinners. We're born in Adam. Or even our propensity to sin. And, and we deserve to be on the cross and crucified and to have God's wrath come upon us. Not the sinless Son of God. But he goes outside of the gate to outcast to sinners and suffers in their place. It's a glorious thing to know that your sins have been forgiven. The priest under the old sacrificial system uh, could not partake in the offering of the meal. They were not allowed, permitted to eat that meat of this, any sin offering. But Jesus, the ultimate atoning lamb, was sacrificed outside of the camp on Golgotha as an offering to God. By the shedding of His blood, Jesus sanctifies His people. Therefore, also Jesus suffered outside of the camp in order that he might what? Sanctify the people. Now, when you see sanctification in the book of Hebrews, it's not necessarily that progressive sanctification, God's working in you, you know, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We have that in other places, but it's more of a purification, if you think of it that, that he might purify the people. Who are the people? It's not all people. It's the people that would repent and believe by his blood. He suffers outside of the camp. Sneak peek, um, the next verse, verse 13. So, in light of these truths, let us go out to Him outside the camp, bearing His reproach. That reproach of which we heard from Isaiah 50 of His beard being plucked out, uh, being beaten and being spit upon and taking his back and having his back flayed open and all the horrendous treatment that he endured, we should be willing to endure suffering for his sake because he's went to such great lengths to save us as our substitute. This is why the Jews mocked Jesus. He's a Jewish man. He saved others. He can't save himself. Yeah, look, he's naked up there. The Jews mocked but who's laughing now? 
because Jesus was vindicated. He set his face like flint. I will die for every one of the people whom the Father has given me to redeem. And I will suffer their, the punishment for their sins in my own body. And what happened? He satisfied God's wrath. He propitiated our sin. He took away that anger against sin that a holy God has to have, right? To be just. He took it away and He laid it on His Son and it satisfied the Father. A couple points of application. Brethren, we have an altar. It's not a physical one up here. We have an altar. The atoning work of Jesus Christ for our sins. And the, the benefits of which we're strengthened by grace through the proclamation of the Word and through the Holy Spirit dwelling on the inside. But the reality is the pollution of our sin is something that makes us feel dirty. How do we get rid of it? The pollution of our sin. Maybe some of you lay awake at night and you're thinking about things, dealing with a guilty conscience. It's not penance that you perform. I'll just really obey my parents and do extra chores. You ever think of that? I want to make mommy and daddy happy. It's not, it's not penance. It's not good works. I just got to volunteer more. Maybe I'll go to the mill this Saturday or whatever. It's not that. It's not even saying, I'm going to read an extra five chapters today. That's a good thing, right? But, but it's not that. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood. Outside the camp He suffered, the Day of Atonement, the, all of that is gloriously fulfilled in the work of Christ. He goes outside of the city to those that are outside and distant from God that He might bring them to God by virtue of His sacrifice. See, the Jews considered anyone being crucified. It's outside of the city. He's cursed of God. God must not have His favor upon Him. That was the mindset of the Jew. Jesus Christ came to the world as a servant to serve. Uh, of, of all people, the God-man, to come to be served by all of us. But no, He comes as a servant to serve. John 13, we see Him on His knees, girding Himself with a towel, washing the disciples' dirty feet. What demonstration of love and humility and servanthood is greater? We have an altar. The pagans and the Jews, they can't see it because they don't have the eyes of faith. They can't see it. We can tell them, but we have an altar too! But they can't see it because they have no eyes of faith. Secondly, let us be on the alert for false teachings um, in our community group, um, we're going through First John, and we just looked at this verse. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they be from God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. So we must test the spirits. Beware of any teaching that adds a little extra ingredients of this or wants to take away something. Anything like that. Let us be aware of anything that's new and novel. Is God's Word changing? No. The basics of what we're supposed to do as a church and how we're to live in Christ doesn't change. So you don't need something that's new and novel. And how did Spurgeon say? Sheep naturally itch after something new. It's that itch to get off the path. Let us stay on the ancient paths. 
And be careful not to elevate any diet or exercise program of certain foods to a place to where you would begin to think, I'm going to derive my strength from this. It's the grace of God. And if you're outside of Christ today, why would you want to not have this altar of a substitutionary sacrifice on your behalf, but you have to repent. You have to confess your sins. You have to run to Jesus. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will not cast out. This is the day of salvation. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is a Savior worth worshiping, worth trusting, banking all of your hope on his final work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness giving us some understanding into this text. Oh God, Lord, may we be these that just want to wave a banner. We have an altar. And that we are those that are being strengthened by the grace of God, mediated to us by the very Word of God and the Holy Spirit and all the means of grace. And so we give you thanks and praise for that. Make us a holy people. Make us a people that that demonstrate by our lives the very truths that we profess to own for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.